Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We are in week two of our brand new series called, let me just get this all situated for everybody here, our series called Heal. And we came up with this concept because I believe, just my opinion, that everybody comes to church, everybody comes to God because we are looking for some kind of healing in our life, some aspect we are looking for God to touch, to heal, to make better, to make new. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we are taking a look at these various aspects of our life that we are desiring some kind of healing in and trying to find out what does the scripture have to say, ways that we can begin to experience healing in those areas. Last week, we talked about healing of the body, one of the more complex topics. It's something that we all struggle with or we ask for at some point in our life. We look to Jesus, we pray to God that he could heal us, and we just had a realistic conversation about what is the reality of the healing of our bodies this side of heaven. And it's confusing at times because we know that Jesus, on the one hand, has the power to heal instantly, and yet at the same time, sometimes he doesn't heal. And how do we understand that? What does it mean when when God chooses not to heal us or at least is delayed in healing? How can we use that opportunity perhaps to reach those around us? But this week, I want to talk about something different. I want to talk to you about relationships. We've got Valentine's Day right around the corner. I thought it would be appropriate for us to kind of talk a little bit about relationships and how we can begin to experience some healing in those areas. Perhaps you're going through a difficult time or maybe things are okay, but, you know, we could always use a little bit of a tune-up. And so that's our goal for today. So let me just, before we begin, talk a little bit about relationships. Um, they're great. I mean, relationships really are great. And there's nothing better, let's be honest, than a brand new relationship. I know a lot of us in the room have been married for a long time. But if you kind of dust off the cobwebs and remember back when you met that person, there was nothing better than the beginning. Like, oh, she's so hot. He's so good looking. Oh, he's so funny. Oh, she's so sweet. And like, depending on when you started to date, you know, you would text all day long, nonstop. Oh, you're so cute. Miss you so much. Or you're on the phone later on at night. After the first service, a woman came up to me and she goes, we didn't text. I met my husband, you know, 50 years ago, but I would dial like Klondike 6285 and that's how I'd reach him. But we're all doing the same thing, you know, and it was the best. And, and it was just, there was so much excitement with this person. You couldn't wait to see them at nighttime. You couldn't wait for the weekend to be with them. Everything was just magical and tingly, you know, and then they got married, okay? And then you got to come down to reality because all of a sudden, you know, you're with this person. And in my wife's case, all of a sudden she realized she married somebody who insists on getting at the airport, you know, two hours before the flight. This is what she's dealing with. Yes, I'm that person, okay? And just in the airport theme of things, she recognized that she is now married to a guy that waits in line before his group has been called because that's what we do in New Jersey. We just, we're just, we need to get there. And then lastly, much to her chagrin, as soon as the plane lands, I'm up, okay? I'm like this in my aisle. I'm one of those guys who's just like, I just can't sit anymore. And she's like, why are you standing? I, I don't know. I just, I can't do this anymore, okay? But every single one of us, to quote my dad, has these peccadillos in our life, these little sins that we do that kind of annoy each other, but not like the biggest thing in the world. But this is relationships. This is what we deal with each other. Now, when it comes to relationships, I heard one person describe it perfectly. He said, a relationship, a marriage is very much like a car, okay? We don't want to work on it. We just want it to work, we, 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 just, we, don't want it to, we just want to put any effort into it. We just want it to work. Now, I think this is true for a lot of us, but some personalities are different. 
There are some people that actively like to work and think about their relationships. They love to go to conferences. They buy the books. They do all this kind of things. But some of us, generally, we're married to that person, really don't want to put any effort in at all whatsoever. So let me just kind of give you how this works in real life. My wife, and she hates when I talk about her from the stage, but I told her, listen, you're out of luck. I mean, you're the only person I'm married to, so I got to talk about you. I was like, I could talk about my relationship with my dog, but that's perfect, okay? And I don't want to be a stumbling block for any of you who don't have that kind of deep, loving relationship I have with my dog where there's just no problems at all, and we just gaze into one another's eyes and just say, you're the best. But my wife, (laughs) you think I'm lying, it's the truth. My wife says, you guys really have a love affair. I'm really feeling left out. So one day, and I don't remember the exact specifics, I think, I think we were both kind of folding laundry in the bedroom, and, and she just stops. And she looks at me, and she goes, let me ask you a question. How often do you think about our marriage? Now, if you're like me, you hear this and you go, oh, this is a trap. <laughs> so she's laid a trap for me. Now, she's not a person that lays traps, but let's be honest, marriage is all about laying traps for the other person, see what I can catch them doing or saying. So I hear this, and, and I go, okay, it's a trap. Now, instantaneously, I'm thinking, how do I answer this? I could say, oh, I think about it a lot, to which she might say, really? You think we got a problem? Or I could say, I don't think about it at all and run the risk of her thinking that I don't care. So I said, you know what? We're humans. We love each other. There's a mutual respect. I'm just going to tell her the truth. And here's the exact quote I say. Don't ever forget it. I go, I'm not going to lie. Like, literally, never. But then I qualified it by saying, because it works, okay? Here's the deal. We have a very, thank, thank God, we have a good relationship, right? We do a couple of things wrong. I leave cups out. She doesn't put her sneakers away. But by and large, you know, things are going pretty smoothly in the Garippa household. So I said, you know what? Things are good. I, I, don't, I don't put that much thought in, into this marriage. I'm just going to be just honest with you. Just, it just works. I don't think about it. But let me talk to you about her for a second because, you know, she's not off the hook. And I just want to give you a little bit into her life. So one day, we're, we're driving to Naples, going to see my folks, and we're taking her car. And we normally take my truck everywhere, okay? And if you never take your spouse's car, and all of a sudden you go in your spouse's car, you're kind of like, what? What is this foreign land? Everything is, like, different and weird. So we're driving across the alley, and all of a sudden I hear this, like, rattle. And I go to her because she's driving, and I go, what's that noise? And she's like, well, what are you talking about? I go, you don't hear that noise? Sounds like pennies rattling around in a tin can. And she goes, no, I don't, I don't hear anything. I go, shut the radio off. I go, that noise. You don't hear that? No, nothing. I'm shutting the radio off. I'm turning off all the AC vents and holding all of our, our, all of our the zippers. And I go, you're telling me you don't hear that noise? To which she goes, oh, that noise? Oh, yeah. That's been doing that for about seven months. Yeah, yeah, no, I've heard that for a while. And I go, who can live like this? How are you driving a car? It sounds like a freight train going down the road. And then she says this, and I'm not making this up. She goes, who cares? The car still works. True, okay? But her mindset with her car is basically the same mindset I brought to our marriage, and many of us do. It's kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, if your relationship is still going down the road, if it hasn't broken down yet, what, what are we worried about it for? Why are we putting any thought into it whatsoever? And as I was reading the scriptures this week and, and kind of preparing what I'm going to show you today, I was very convicted by my own sermon. Very convicted, okay? So we're all in the same boat. I was very convicted. Because the reality is that if you don't put work into your marriage, even when it's going well, like a car, eventually it'll break down. 
It's, it's just, it's, it's how it works. You need to put work into these marriages. So my hope for today is I'm just going to show you two things, okay, because there's so much that you could say about marriage. I mean, there's, that's why churches have whole series. That's why there's all conferences. That's why there's so many books, like the five love languages. There's so many things we could talk about, but I'm just going to talk about two things today, that if we begin to put this into practice, you can begin to experience some healing inside of your marriage, or hopefully do some preventative maintenance so that things don't go wrong. So I want to kind of give you a guiding principle for the day as you kind of hear everything that we're going to be talking about. I just want to keep this in the back of your mind as to how to understand this whole thing today. Basically, it's this, that love starts as a feeling, but it's kept alive by a choice. Love starts as a feeling that, oh, she's so hot, oh, he's so cute, oh, I can't wait to hang out with them. That's how it starts. But eventually that love is kept alive by a choice. And I understand that this is not the most romantic line that you could kind of put out there in life. This is not something you would, you know, see in Love Actually or some rom-com, okay? But the reason we love rom-coms, romantic comedies, is because they remind us of those tinglies that we had in the very beginning. You know, you watch that with your spouse. All of a sudden, you guys, you know, like each other that night, and the next day is pretty good too, and then you're back down to reality, okay? But Jesus is saying that if you begin to follow what the Scripture says in your marriage, you can extend those tinglies, so to speak, a lot further into the future than you actually thought. So on the last night of Jesus' life, getting towards the end of his ministry, he looks at his disciples, and it's at the end of the Last Supper. It's kind of like, you know, coffee's coming out now, that kind of a thing. And he looked at them, and he says, all right, I got one new command for you. I know you got the Ten Commandments. I know we got the 613 laws, whatever they are. We don't really do those anymore. He goes, but I'm just going to give you one new command. So get out your paper, get out your pens, he says, and goes, here it is. He looks at him, and he goes, you ready? Okay. Love one another. Love one another. And what's interesting is that what you see that Jesus is doing here is he's using love as a verb. See, when we think about love, we think about it like a noun. Love is something you fall into. Love is something you fall out of. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Love is a verb. Love is something you do. This week I was walking through this message with Christina and we were kind of talking about what it would look like if you went to Jesus for marriage counseling, and, we, and I think it actually wouldn't be that good. Because I imagine, like, you've got a husband, you've got a wife, whatever the case may be. He's sitting there. He's got his bifocals on because that's, you know, what you wear these days. And the husband's like, hey, listen, you know, she's doing this, and, and, he, and she's saying he's doing this, and, and we're doing this and the other thing. And Jesus kind of stopped. Wait, 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 wait. Takes off the glasses, kind of puts it in the end of his mouth because that's what you do before you say something profound. And he goes, are you loving one another? And the husband's like, you're, you're not listening, Jesus. I, I'm telling I used to love her, but now she's doing this. And she's saying, I used to love him, but now he's doing this. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. Sounds like you're talking about a feeling. I, I'm asking you, are you loving one another? See, Jesus says, love one another. And he qualifies it. He goes, as I have loved you, you must love one another. See, Jesus looks at us and looks at our relationships and he goes, when it comes to love, let me just be really clear. You are not to be taking your cue about love from a romantic comedy. You are not to be taking your cue from love, even from your parents. Because let's be honest with us, so many of us have come from broken homes where we just saw love in a weird and distorted way. 
Jesus is saying, I want you to take your cue about love for one another for me, how I loved you. And if you've read the scripture, you know there's so many various ways that Jesus loved us, but the biggest way that Jesus loved us is that he gave his life for us. And he's saying, in your marriage, in your relationship, you need to love each other as I loved you. So Paul was one of the New Testament authors. He actually hated Christians. Then he met Jesus one day. His life was transformed, and he went on to write half the New Testament, and he changed the world. And, and he looked at Jesus, and he, and he, and he saw Jesus' command to love one another as Jesus loved the church, love one another. He, he said, all right, I'm going to pick up this challenge, and I'm going to show you practically how you can apply this command in your marriage. So in Ephesians 5.22, Paul says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Seems pretty clear. All right, let's pray. Uh, No, I'm kidding. This is like when you put this up, when you put this up, let me be honest with you. This phrase right here is pretty much the bane of every pastor's existence because we know when you put this up there, Basically, everybody's offended, okay? Women particularly are very offended by this phrase. And if you weren't here about three or four months ago, we did a whole sermon series called The More You Know. And one day we asked the question, is Christianity sexist? And we spent a whole day dissecting this phrase. Because the reality is that so many of us have seen this phrase taken out of context, misused, abused, And I'm not surprised why people would be offended by this. But but if you haven't had the chance to go back and listen to that series yet called The More You Know, just for today, if you are a person who hears this and gets offended, I would just challenge you, just reserve judgment for a little bit. Let me try to explain to you what Paul is actually trying to do here. Because if we can begin to understand what he's actually trying to say, our marriages can be absolutely transformed. So Paul writes that wives should submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. But he didn't write in English. He wrote in Greek. And what I want to do is I want to show you the words that he actually wrote. So I I got them translated just word for word what Paul actually wrote. Here's what he actually wrote. Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. These are the words that Paul actually penned on that paper so many years ago. And you read this and you go, well, where does it say? Submit's not there. Where's, where's submit? Where's the, where's the verb? Are you telling me that somebody somewhere along the way added submit and I knew it? I'm told, I've been telling everybody, they add stuff to the Bibles. Thank you. Finally, you made it clear. Let me explain to you what's happening here. So in Greek sometimes, when you're a Greek writer, what they would do many times is they would have an overarching principle, an opening line, an opening argument, and then the subsequent lines would infer the verb from the opening line. And so what we have here in Ephesians 5.22 is we are inferring the verb submit from the opening, the guiding principle. So the question is, okay, where did we get submit from? It's the verse right before when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In a relationship, he's saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is groundbreaking. What Paul is saying, he's saying, 
You need to submit to one another inside your marriage because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He's saying your marriage needs to be characterized by mutual submission. Not just one person, mutual submission to each other. It's this idea that I'm here for you, you're here for me, but I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because Christ was here for me. That's the challenge of what Paul is saying here. He's saying you are to be mutually submitting to one another inside of marriage. He goes on and he says something, we don't put it up yet. He says something that completely transformed the world as we know it. Because of what he put in this next verse, it completely transformed society. Now, not every part of the world has been transformed by this, but America has. We live in a world of Ephesians 5.25. Because here's what Paul says next. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, you hear this and you go, well, that, that doesn't sound very revolutionary. That just sounds normal. But you're a 21st century person. This is the world that you live in where husbands and wives just love each other. But you have to understand that when Paul wrote this to the original audience, to the original Greeks, to the original Romans, the original Jews, they lived under Roman law. And we talked about this in The More You Know, and if you want to hear more about it, go back and listen. But the law of the land at that time was called patria potesta, the power of the father. And in that culture, the husband had power of life and death over the wife and over the children. A woman was nothing but a possession. Children were nothing but an accessory. The father and the man had the ultimate say in life and death. And Paul is looking into that culture and saying to those men, men, I understand that up until this point, you had patria potesta, but you've said yes to Jesus. You're a Christian now. Now, now you love your wives. And you love your wives as Christ loved the church. And because these men knew who Jesus was, and they knew the story of Jesus, they knew that Paul was saying from this point forward, men, you die for your wives. You live to serve your wife in any capacity you can. See, the, the picture Paul is painting here is that he wants husbands and wives to almost get into a, like a submission competition. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. This is what he wants in our marriages. He says, if you want to thrive, if you want your relationship to grow and thrive and be healthy, then you've got to put her best interests over yours and his best interests over yours. And that's a choice. That's a choice you have to make because that does not come naturally. He's saying you have to actually choose to submit to the other person. But if you want this submission thing to work, he's saying it, it, it has to be mutual. You both have to submit to one another if this is going to work. And submitting really means releasing control of your own life. We say we submit to God, we hand our lives over to God. But what Paul is saying here is that you need to submit your life 
You need to lay down your hopes, your dreams, your desires, the way that you think things should go. You need to lay it all down and say, I'm here for you. I'm laying it down, and I'm here submitting to you, serving you. And that's a scary thought. It's a scary thought because we as humans have been programmed to look out for number one. We are here in this earth looking out for our own best interests, to make sure that my hopes, my desires, my needs, everything gets met. And the thought of laying that down is scary because what if I submit and she doesn't? What if I live to serve and he continues to live to serve himself? And and we hear the teachings of Paul that we need to mutually submit to each other, and yet we're so worried about the other person not doing it that we almost find ourselves in a standoff. It's almost like, I'll do it if you do it, but we got to do it together. And it reminded me of this picture from The Office. I don't know if you watch The Office or not. It's one of my favorite shows on TV. It's kind of show you fall asleep to every single night before bed, all right? But one day, Michael and Dwight get in this, like, make-believe standoff, and they're just holding guns at each other. And this is kind of how we are in our marriage when it comes to submitting. It's kind of like, well, well, I'll lay down my guns. If you lay down your guns, I'll submit to you if you submit to me. But we've got to do it together. It has to happen at the same time. And the only way that Michael and Dwight are going to lower their fake weapons is if they can trust that the other person is going to do it as well. And in a marriage, the reality is this. The only way that we are going to feel safe to submit to the other person is if we can trust that they will submit as well. But trust inside of a marriage is a difficult thing. A lot of us suffer with, you know, struggle with trust inside of our marriage. And I may say that, and you may say, well, John, that's not a problem for me. I trust my wife. I trust my husband. But when you say something like that, nine times out of ten what you're talking about is fidelity. I trust that he will never cheat on me. I, I trust that she will never cheat on me. He will never cheat on me. We, we have this trust here. But when Paul is talking about trust, he's talking about something way, way, way bigger. I'm going to shift gears and talk about this, this trust thing that he's talking about. And we find it in probably one of the most famous passages of all Scripture. It's called the love chapter. If you've never been in church in your entire life, but you've gone to a wedding, you have heard this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this about love. He goes, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Continues. It does not demand its own way. That's the, let's do it your way. It's you, not me. That's what he's talking about there. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wrong. I mean, if we just did that one, Couldn't our marriages be transformed? I mean, because let's be honest, folks. Aren't relationships one big scorecard? Oh, she did this. Oh, he did this. Oh, he bought that. Oh, I'm going to buy this. Oh, she did that. Oh, wait till she just... And it's one big scorecard. Paul's saying, don't do that. You you don't need to be living that kind of life. And then he gives us a list. And this is where I want to land for the rest of the day. He says, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. And love always perseveres. You look at this list and you kind of think about it in your own head and you go, all right, I can always protect that other person. Yeah. I can always hope for the best. Sure. 
and persevere. All right, I understand that. That's the idea. There's going to be some ups. There's going to be some downs. But our love is going to get through it. That makes sense. But love always trusts. Well, that really has nothing to do with me. I mean, that's the other person. I, I can't say that I, that I can always trust that other person. And what's interesting is that in the original Greek, what Paul actually says is not, not love always trusts. What he actually says is that love always believes everything. And that's even a higher standard, in my opinion. See, what Paul is saying is that when it comes to your marriage, love defaults to trust. That's the key to success, he's saying. If you want to bring healing into your marriage, if you want to bring healing into your relationships, if you want it to thrive, if you want to feel safe to submit your life to the other person, to live for the other person, you have to have trust. You need to have trust. And there's so many ways we could talk about trust inside of a marriage, but I want to give you one illustration that I believe every single person in this room can, can agree with. So in every single relationship, there is a gap that exists between what we expect someone to do or what we've been led to believe someone will do. Something like, I'll be home at 6. I'll get the kids to school on time. I'll get the car fixed. I'll make dinner reservations. I'll book the plane tickets. I'll get the bills paid. There's a gap that exists between what we expect someone to do or what we've been led to believe someone will do and what we experience. And Paul is saying that when you find yourself in this gap between what you expect and what you're actually experiencing, he's saying you have a choice. You have a choice how you can fill that gap. He believes that you should choose to believe the best. Trust always. Okay, I expected this to happen. It didn't happen. I don't know why she was laid. I don't know why he didn't do this. I don't know why the bill didn't get paid. I, but I'm sure there's a good reason. And I'm sure tonight, when we talk, when we have a conversation, I'm sure there's a good reason why this particular expectation didn't get met. He's saying, choose to believe the best. Or you can assume the worst. did it again. There he goes again. There she goes again. I knew they'd do this. I expected this to happen. That's how it always goes. Paul is saying, if you want your relationship to thrive, if you want to begin to feel healing inside of that marriage, inside of that relationship, you have to choose to believe the best. You have to choose to believe the best. Now, you may hear this and you say, John, I'm going to be honest with you. You're a nice guy. Paul's a smart guy. But this sounds a little naive. This sounds like you're just asking us to stick our head in the sand, to, 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 to ignore the reality of what this person has been doing over and over and over again. I don't understand how believing the best, choosing to believe the best, choosing to trust always, I don't understand how that's going to heal anything. I don't understand how that's going to heal my marriage or benefit this marriage at all. So I read this week, and it was quite an interesting study. Uh, these scientists, I guess you'll call them, conducted a 20-year study looking at what they called happy couples. And these people stayed together not just because they had children. 
They stayed together because they actually liked each other. And the hypothesis of this 20-year study, the assumption, rather, of this 20-year study is that these couples that have been together for 20 years or longer, their assumption was that as time went on, the spouses essentially lowered the bar for each other. That the husband wasn't as good as she thought he was, that the wife wasn't as good as he thought he was, and eventually they just lowered the bar, and then by lowering the bar, they maintained happiness, made maintained happiness in the household. When the study was finished up, what they learned was quite the opposite. What they learned, and that in these happy couples, that these spouses had, quote, unrealistically positive views of each other. That when they were asked to rate each other, that the spouse said, oh, he's better than me, she's better than me. These guys had unrealistically positive views of each other. The study said, you know what we learned? Love was blind. Love was blind. That these happy couples actively chose to see the best in each other. That year after year, they just chose to see the best about the person they were married with. And what they learned, what the pollsters, what these scientists learned, is that this choosing to believe the best actually created what they called an upward spiral of love, right? Yuck, okay? But that's what they called it. It's upward, okay? And here's what, and I'm, I'm going to put it right in the screen so you see what I see. But what they found, once I saw this, I go, oh my gosh, they're right. Here's what they learned by looking at these happy couples who chose to believe the best about each other. They learned that illusion created conviction. This idea that I'm going to choose to believe the best in spite of the reality, okay? That's the illusion. I'm going to choose to believe the best. And after years of doing that, it created a conviction that their spouse actually was the best. They started to believe their, their own hype, okay? And this conviction led to security, or as we would call it, trust. That they can now trust this person that they're with because they so love them, because they think they're so great. And the security led to intimacy. Because as you may or may not know, you can only truly be intimate with somebody when you can give your life over to them, when you can just absolutely trust them with everything. And the intimacy fostered love. And the love underscored the conviction about how great that person is. And around and around and around it went. And when the 20-year study was finally finished and they looked at all the findings, they came up with a recommendation. And they said, if you want to be in a happy marriage, if you want to be a happy couple, our recommendation to you is this. Find the most generous explanation for each other and believe it. Find the most generous explanation for each other and believe it. Now, I'm not a smart man, but that sounds a lot like what Paul said. Trust always. Believe everything always. Now, some of you hear this and you go, John, you don't know my spouse. Just time and time, and they're not a bad person, but it's just time and time again, the same thing over and over and over. Are you really wanting me to always believe the best in spite of what I've seen? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you know what happens when you always assume the worst? Do you know what happens when you live a life where he did it again, she did it again, 
I knew this was going to happen. You know what happens? It leads to suspicion. It leads to suspicion. And suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you go looking for something, oh, you'll always find something. That's what happens. And do you know what it's like to live in a house with a suspicious person? Because I've heard the stories. It's not fun. If you're the other person who lives in a house with a spouse who's suspicious, you live your life walking on eggshells because you feel like you're always being watched. That the other person's always waiting for you to screw up. And what ends up happening is you end up saying, well, you know what? They think I'm going to do this anyway. I might as well do it. Suspicion can absolutely shipwreck a marriage. And it can absolutely destroy your mental health. Elvis Presley, great musician, he once said this, suspicion torments my heart. Suspicion keeps us apart. Suspicion, what to me? Okay, I, I told my wife, <laughs> I told my wife, I, go, I think I'm going to sing the last line. She goes, please do not sing the last line. I'm going to fill the crowd out. If it looks like it's dying, I'm going to sing it, all right? But this is so, listen, the man knows what he's talking about here. And if you're a person who ever in your life, even for a little bit, dealt with suspicion, you know what he's saying is true. It torments your heart, okay? It keeps people apart, and it's torture, you can never let your guard down when you are suspicious. So, do you know what happens when you choose to trust? And I understand every single one of us has baggage in life. Okay? I get that. Some of us more than others. And I understand that some of us have real, real trust issues. But, do you know what happens when you choose to trust, when you choose to believe the best always, it creates an environment for success. You don't believe me? Parents in the room. I'm going to talk to the parents in the room. Your children trust you. They trust you with their lives. They look in your eyes and they know that you will never hurt me, that you will take care of me, that you will be there for me no matter what. They trust you unconditionally. And as a parent, you know that you would do whatever it takes to never break that trust. You would die before you broke the trust of your child. You would do whatever it takes to live up to the expectations that that child has put you in. What would happen if you offered that same trust up to your spouse? How do you think your marriage would change if you looked at your spouse and you said, I trust you with my life? In spite of what you've seen, maybe time and time again, you looked at them and said, I trust you. I believe that they would live up to those expectations. I believe over time of you continually choosing to believe the best that your spouse will meet those expectations and your marriage will thrive. What's practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday 
and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. First practical is this. I would challenge each and every single one of you to race to the back of the line. Jesus and Paul are saying that our marriages are essentially supposed to be a submission competition. What would it look like for you in your relationship if each and every day you race to the back of the line so that your spouse could be first? Imagine if your spouse came to you and said, hey, I just want to let you know, from here on out, I'm living for you. Your hopes, your dreams, your desires, I live to serve you. You'd be pumped. Now, do that for each other. That's what Paul is saying. Lastly, I would challenge you. Test out trust just for a week. Test it out. When expectations, what you thought should happen, what you were led to believe would happen, when that doesn't match up to reality and you find yourself in that gap just for a week, choose to believe the best. And just see, just see if things don't start to change. Just see if your love starts to grow. Just see if behaviors start to curtail and get better because you began to believe the best about your spouse. Love, always. Choose to believe everything, always. Jesus said, love each other as Christ loved you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come here today. I want to thank you for every single person that came to this room, Lord. Many of us in this room are in relationships. Some good, some struggling. But I pray that today, Lord, you would give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to begin putting in the work into these relationships, Lord, so that we can begin to experience healing no matter where we are on this journey, Lord. Marriage is a gift from you. And you gave your life for us to help us to begin loving our spouse as you loved us, giving our life up for them in any way that we can because you did that for us. Lord, if someone right now here in this room is struggling with real hurt, because nothing hurts more than when someone close to you hurts you, Lord. If someone right now in this room is just going through one of the darkest times in their life when it comes to their marriage, I pray that you would step in today Today, Lord, I pray that you would touch them and bring healing into that marriage, Lord, and put a spotlight on what the real problem may be. Bring clarity to their thoughts. Bring clarity to that relationship, Lord. And in your name, I pray that healing can begin in a mighty and powerful way. I ask all these requests in Jesus' name. Amen.